I am Allison Cole, and even though I am a licensed psychologist, I am here to only provide general information about psychological and emotional issues, but my guest and I will not be rendering psychological or healthcare advice for any individual or for his or her particular situation. If you are seeking a diagnosis, treatment, or advice regarding medical or mental health issue, please request a referral for a psychologist, psychotherapist, or licensed professional. Good afternoon. Welcome to our podcast, What Does It Take to Heal? My name is Corey Griffiths, professional drug and alcohol interventionist with a lifelong interest in all forms of healing. I am collaborating with Dr. Allison Cole, psychologist and owner of Create Outcomes, to do this podcast and uncover what it really takes to heal. I would first like to introduce our sponsor, Tomes, created by four-time Grammy Award-winning producer, Toby Wright. Well, thank you, Corey. I appreciate being here, and I um, hope you have a great podcast. Wonderful. And I look forward to hearing our sample at the end. It should be fantastic, and I hope that our listening audience enjoys the entire thing. <laughs> Me too. Stay tuned. This series will focus on how to know when you need help to heal and what it takes to find the right therapist. In our last episode, we discussed the question, what do you need to know about trauma before choosing a therapist? In today's episode, we will explore the question, how do I get someone help when they are not seeking help on their own? Good morning, Dr. Cole. Good morning, Corey. Um, I think that this one is one of the hardest, and I thought it was important that we put it in this series about how to find the right therapist and knowing when to go to therapy, because a lot of the times there's someone that we love that we know needs help, and it's hard to get them there for a lot of reasons, which we'll talk about today. But one of the things that you and I kind of were throwing around is I really have held the belief that, you know, people say like they have to want help, they have to do it for themselves. And of course, there's some truth to that. But I've always held the belief that people do really get into their first step of being healed because of the way that they value relationship. They don't want to lose a partner or don't want their parents to give up on them. And even if they aren't quite ready to do it just for themselves, that may be that they are compelled to do it for the relationship. I agree with that, Dr. Cole. I think that it's definitely a combination of the two at all times. I will tell you, I was always a strong believer, just because this is what I had heard, that if you are not doing it for yourself, meaning getting sober, it's not going to work. But I also heard you can't love someone else until you love yourself. And that's absolutely not true. I loved many people throughout my life while hating myself. So I think it's a combination of doing it for myself and for my relationships. But my my sponsor who really changed my life, Wally Wessel, that I met in 2014, asked me at one point, what what is the point of recovery? And then before I was able to... Uh, say anything said don't say sobriety and so i listened he said it's relationships what we get to have as a result of putting down the need for substances is quality relationships so i've kind of gone from there and and 
you know, the, the truth is it doesn't matter why someone comes into recovery or comes into seek help. It matters that they stay and that they make a decision to change and, and stay on that road. Yeah, and I think just the job you have in itself as an interventionist, right, that people will pay you to do that shows our listeners how difficult it is sometimes to get someone you love to like value the relationship or value themselves enough to be able to make that choice to get help at that moment. So I thought it'd be good for us to start with um, all the difficulties that and all the roadblocks that get in the way when you're trying to get someone you love into therapy or into a treatment center for addiction. So to start with, I think um, looking at these things that get in the way, one is stigma still. I mean, as much as there are so, you know, as much as therapy has become a more acceptable way for people to get treatment, and I hear millennials and Gen Z just talk about it more freely, but there still is stigma. Like something must really be wrong with me if I need to go to therapy or go into treatment. And people often don't know what that will look like. And that's kind of one of the purposes of our podcast is to be able to show what therapy, what treatment can look like. So it's not as scary for people to make that first step and call call a therapist or, or meet with an interventionist. But more than anything, I think what stands in the way of people getting help, and sometimes this is hard for loved ones to see, is that they actually don't see themselves as having the potential that the loved one might see in them. And a lot of times we want to, you know, tell someone, well, you're so smart, you're, you know, you could do anything you wanted to do and think that this is sort of going to be what motivates them to take that first step to get help. When oftentimes the person really just needs to be seen for how they might feel damaged, maybe from trauma or just from not feeling successful in life and how they might not believe that there's a future for them outside of the depression, the anxiety, the addiction. And having to kind of sit with the person in first that that state of feeling like, no, maybe I'm so damaged or, or there's no way I'm like everybody else and I'm going to be able to get through this and live a good life. So Corey, would you mind sharing a little bit about if you relate to any of this and what kind of your experience has been? Because I know there's been a lot of people who have really tried to help you and get you into treatment over the years before you actually got sober many years ago. Absolutely, Dr. Cole. Thank you for that question. I should start out by saying that my experience is limited to both personally and professionally in the world of substance use disorder. So I didn't believe that I could change. What I didn't realize at the time and what I think a lot of family members don't realize is that the substance is in and of itself the medicine. It's not the problem until it becomes so problematic that the nexus for change is necessary. Um, but the what happened is I would basically go from treatment center or detox or jail into some type of sober living environment. Um, and after 
physically getting well enough to start thinking differently, I would start to believe that I could live differently. So this would last between, at least outside of incarceration, probably three to six months. And at that point, this anxiety would kick in and this discontentedness toward life. And it would become seemingly more painful to live without the use of substances than, than it was uh, to live with them. And I couldn't remember how problematic it was. It felt like I was just waiting, you know, going day by day until I could get the relief of that drug again. Nothing truly changed within me until I was able to, to take a look at that. It seemed like anxiety would just come in these waves and the drugs I was doing was the medicine for that. So I had no experience with anything different. On a personal note, my mom didn't want to have anything to do with me, starting from the time I started doing heroin. Uh, I know that she was given the advice to quit loving me now because I was just going to die. In fact, my dad, who was not that way at all, got to the point when I was probably in my early 30s where he came up to me and in tears said I have been waiting for years for you to just die like he had been living in fear and it was almost like it would be easier if I would just die so that they could get on with their lives and I was I was really upset but after thinking about that for you know a couple of years I realized that that was absolutely true Corey, I, again, I love how you bring your vulnerability here. And I think that if there are listeners out there who have a loved one who's been dealing with substance use addiction and, and even chronic mental illness, like it can feel where you can get to the point where you do want to give up on the person. And we hope that, you know, our episode, our podcast today can help people just find a way to be able to continue to to love and support but still preserve their own pain and their own emotional health and i know that you know because your mom wasn't able to love you through it and your dad had put himself through a lot and was really scared and they weren't able to get through to you can you talk about what did get through to you what what do you think eventually was that change agent that got you to really decide that it was time to change your life and get sober and and come back to your relationships in a new way? That's a difficult question to answer, but I will say that my first conversation with Wally lasted an hour, and I didn't say much at all. He kept talking, and he had answers and he had a perspective that I hadn't heard before. So it was a combination of my willingness to change and the belief that I had met someone who had answers that could get me to that point. I wish that there was a, a magic formula that I could give everyone, but it's definitely a combination of certain things. He was incredibly positive. He was spiritual and he got me to believe that if I did something different, I would get different results. So 
I just, I, I really am happy that Wally existed because I'm happy you're sitting here with us. Cause I think if it wasn't that one person, then I wonder if anybody would have been able to get you to really choose sobriety in that life. And so I just, I know Wally's no longer with us, but I just want to give a little tribute to him for keeping you alive. And I think that our listeners out there, you might be that one person, you might be somebody's Wally and you might not, but there's always the chance that you might just at the right time, just like Wally came at just the right time for Corey, be there for that person to to intervene and, and hold their hand into that first step of recovering from whatever pain and suffering that they're in. So just a tribute to Wally. And I think what I want to point out more than anything is you've talked about these shame-based, tough love interventions. And what we saw with what Wally did with you was an example of love and being non-judgmental and being able to, in a, yeah, a loving, non-judgmental way, show you what the future could hold. You know, he also said to me quite often, I can tell you're going to help a lot of people, which really helped me. And it gave some credence to the pain and the experiences that I had had and didn't make me think, oh, I've been fucking up for all these years. It said, because of these experiences, you will be able to save someone's life. And that meant a lot to me because I wanted nothing but to recover and be able to help other people recover. I just didn't believe that I could do so until he put it into those words. So, well, maybe you can use that as our listeners. That you know, who knows? You don't know what's going to work with somebody, but it sounds like that helped Corey is to just let somebody know that their experiences can actually help other people in their same situation save their lives. So, getting back to what I was saying, Corey, around um, tough love versus a non-judgmental loving approach when somebody's trying to get a loved one into treatment um, or into therapy. I know that since the 70s, we've had this trans theoretical model and it's stages of change and talks about kind of when somebody is ready to actually get help. And the first stage is pre-contemplation and then contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. But pre-contemplation is when maybe your loved one isn't even starting to think about not doing drugs or you know getting out of their depression. And that's one of the, the toughest stages to enter into, but it's not to say that it's not worth a try. And I think you know, talking a little bit more now about how we kind of overcome some of those difficulties we might face in getting someone that for into that first step toward help um, is is to come with this loving, non-judgmental stance, and also to help them really articulate what it is that lies ahead of them, that what kind of life might be there. The problem with that, as I said earlier, is some people don't even see that there might be a life that's there for them. So really going in between being able to honor or acknowledge that they might feel so badly about themselves that they can't picture that, but also beginning to weave in an idea of a life that might be available to them. And I'm wondering, Corey, in, in your story, uh, if you can talk a little bit more about the way that 
somebody showing their care is is a change agent, is something that might help somebody move from, let's say, a pre-contemplation stage to a contemplation stage of wanting to change and get help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd like to point out that people don't want to be strung out on drugs. People don't want to be suffering. So for me, having a conversation with that particular part of them, the part that does want to change, and not speaking to the part of them that is using drugs or making that decision. Um, and this starts with a conversation, not an intervention, uh, withholding judgment about the way that, that we think they should live. Um, I had some friends who started a conversation and helped me to remember what I truly cared about. Um, what is problematic is actually believing that I can live differently. It is through many failures that have enabled me to become who I am today in regard to helping convince people that they can have freedom from addiction and depression and anxiety and then being willing to work on that. And I'm sure that, you know, in these conversations, like, you know, in a therapy setting, we might call it something like motivational interviewing, which I don't think works at all unless the person who's doing it knows truly how to remove their judgment. And, you know, you're saying that these friends had these conversations with you and that what really got in the way was was believing that this that this that you could have a life that was different. And so an example of kind of starting where somebody's at is like with a kind of motivational interviewing technique that the that our listeners could use if they're trying to get a loved one into treatment is to truly truly follow the values of the person so a lot of times i would get teenagers and the mom would come to me or the dad would come and say please i'll do anything get you know please just help my kid get off these drugs or stop being anxious or stop being depressed i'll do anything and so after i meet with the teenager, I find out that school is really where they're being bullied or they're stressed out and and they want to do a homeschool program and get a part-time job because they can't see themselves going to college. And for now, this is what they can see themselves doing. So I bring that to the parents and I'm like, wonderful news. Your kid is absolutely ready to change. All we need to do is help them get a homeschool program and a part-time job and they're motivated to start trying to heal. And the parents look at me and go, absolutely not. They're going to college, you know? And right. so I think the one of the biggest messages I want to send to our listeners who are helping a loved one is even if you can't understand and you don't think it's best for them, what we know for sure is it's best for them to not be debilitated by depression, anxiety, or addiction. So whatever it is, that is calling to them as long as it doesn't harm themselves or others, you know, that we make that possible for them, that a first step toward healing might be helping them do something that, that you never thought was what was right for them. So as Wally talked about, and Jonathan Hari, who is an interesting man who talks about addiction nowadays, talks often about the opposite of Addiction isn't sobriety, it's community, right? And so I think looking back at the conversations and interventions that I had in my life, there were certain family members 
uh, my older brother, my little sister, my dad were always there for me. And it got to the point where they didn't judge me. They were genuinely afraid. But when I was at the point where I really needed help, I could reach out and they were there. So this idea of tough love, I just want to to say what worked for me was I knew that the love was never taken away. I may not be able to get money, but I could get love and I could get help when I really sought it. And then coming to believe that something could be different, that change could happen, you know, it may take getting someone into treatment where they can make that decision. Um, and that process can be difficult, but that decision can be made, uh, you know, many times along the way, and we can reach a higher level of freedom because of that. I think you you said something that is really important, and, and I want to reiterate. And as we are, you know, concluding our podcast, I we have several kind of clear tips that our listeners can take with them, and that what you just said really connects to this idea around setting boundaries. So it's so confusing when your loved one calls you for money or, you know, they're so depressed they can't get out of bed and they're lost their jobs. And it's a really fine, nuanced line to walk to help them and know when to help them and how to help them. And what we're describing as love versus tough love, you know, is that you we never have to remove the love and the relationship but we can set boundaries like not giving them money or having ways that we preserve ourselves because what's going to happen is Corey is showing us that this could take years. This could take many conversations. So you need to save your energy as the loved one and you need to just use your energy for planning these talks or interventions so that you can really show up in a non-judgmental loving way and save your energy for being able to actually take this person to that treatment center, to that therapist and help them use your money to actually pay for the treatment, not to give to them so they could go maybe do another round of drugs or, you know, stay out of work for another month comfortably. Um, so, it's, it is a confusing process, but it is so important to preserve your energy and your resources and so that you can use them throughout time to intervene in, like, in a healthy, balanced way. So that's one big tip I want people to take away from with them, especially from the story you've shared, Corey. And I would, I would also say as another tip that I want people to take with them is always come to these conversations with a phone number. And if it's for addiction, you know, maybe it's a phone number for an interventionist who's just ready to have that conversation so that you've already talked to that person sometimes feels really comforting. Like I've already had a conversation. All you have to do is call them, just talk. I just texted you the number. It's right there on your phone. That's his name. And same if you're trying to get someone in therapy. I think it's fine to call a therapist ahead, find someone who you think would be a good match for your loved one, and then just say, I already talked to someone. I have a couple people in mind. Just give it a shot. All you have to do is give them a call. They're expecting your phone call. Here's their number. 
Now, I'm not saying that's going to work with everyone, but I do think it's really important because even if they, if you gave them a glimmer of hope and motivation, they need to have that number in their hand. So the moment that they have some clarity or insight that this is the moment they need to take to get healing, that they have that number right there with them. So is there any tips that you want to give our listeners to kind of take with them if they're out there trying to help a loved one get into treatment? Yes, Dr. Cole, there actually are. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are familiar with the television show Intervention or this idea that has been circulating for quite a while that seems to me to be a shame-based approach, which is get everyone in the family to write this story about how your drug use or actions have negatively affected us. And that doesn't seem, for me, I should say, that was not a motivating factor in getting to the point where I believed that I could actually recover. And it took me months and months sober before I was even able to look at how my actions for years affected my family and then be willing to make amends to them and try and build relationships. So love, care, and asking the the person what they want out of life right now and how you can be of assistance. I, when doing interventions, kind of do this, um, I'd call it a manipulative motivational interviewing where I talk to maybe that 2% of them that does want to be sober and not to the other 98% of them. But that's a difficult You mean of the learn. person. It sounds like you're talking about multiple people, but you mean 2% of who that human is. Correct. Yeah. Say I'm doing an intervention on, on you and there is 98% of you that wants to stay out on the street using there is a small part of you that wants to get sober and wants to have a community and family. So speaking to that aspect of the person or that part of the person uh, allows them to respond from that part. To ask in, a, in an honest way, how are you doing? Are you sad? Do you want help? And then lastly, I would say to present to someone two possible futures. Um, you know, if you continue on this road that you're on, can you see your life in one year, in two years, in five years? Or if you make this decision today to get help, can you see your life in one year or two years or five years? And what do you want from life? Do you want a partner and a family? Or do you want to still be talking to me two years from now? Um, and getting someone to see that the life that I want to live can start with this single step that I'm making today and keep it as simple as that. Yeah, and I, I like this idea of talking to a part of the person that actually does want to change. I think that can become a little bit complicated for, you know, people who aren't experienced in doing these types of interventions on their family member or their loved one. But I would, I would just change what you're saying a little bit from my perspective that the two possible futures that I wouldn't ask them direct yes or no questions like, do you want a partner? Do you want this? I would really have them articulate, like, tell me what it will look like 
two years from now if you kept doing exactly what you're doing right now? Tell me what it would look like two to five years from right now, what you would be doing instead if you if you no longer were dealing with the pain and suffering that you're that you're dealing with right now or the addiction or the pain that's under that addiction. Tell me what that road might look like. What is your ideal road? And in, in our practice, we call it the destination. We ask the person to articulate ideally what do they want in this life. And even if it feels a little far-fetched, it doesn't matter because we can take one step at a time toward that. And if we allow the person to spell it out to us and refrain from judging them, then their brain actually gets to picture themselves rather than if you're telling them what's possible and what their potential is, if they were to choose that other path, their brain doesn't get as much of the opportunity to really hold that image as, as they would if they expressed it themselves. So I'll just add that tip onto what you shared, Corey, and I appreciate it. But number one, I think Corey and I are saying, come with love, don't bring judgment, save your energy, have a contact person you can hand right over to them. And lastly, I, I don't mean to end on such a depressing note, but I, I have to because we have too many people that die of suicide at this point. And please do not ever be afraid, even if there's just a tiny thought that somebody's suffering could be causing them to consider taking their own life. Please ask them, do you want to die? Do you want to kill yourself? Do you have a plan to do that? And if you know, the do you want to die question is yes, but the other questions are no, then, you know, a suicide hotline in your area might be enough. If the answer is yes to I want to kill myself or I have a plan and or I have a plan, then then we need a 911 call. And I'll just share a quick story in a training I was in for suicide. They interviewed the guy, one of the only survivors who survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said right before he jumped. He said, all I wanted throughout that whole day is just one person to talk directly to me and ask me something about myself. And right before he jumped, this woman stopped him and asked if she, if he would take a picture and he took the picture and then he jumped off the bridge and he survived. And what he has lived to teach us is that all we have to do is ask and there is this kind of myth, even among therapists, that if we ask somebody, we're somehow like putting it in their head. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. What we know actually prevents suicide. The only thing that prevents suicide is actually asking somebody if they want to die. So please, if you have a loved one you're worried about, don't be afraid of asking that question and sitting in their pain with them. Thank you so much, Corey. I really uh, appreciated this opportunity to help people help people. Thank you, Dr. Cole. And thank you to Tomes. Uh, this does conclude our series on how to know when you need help to heal and what it takes to find the right therapist. Please keep an eye out for our season two, where we will have lots of spectacular guests and excellent episodes. Our sponsor is Tomes, a sound healing and meditation technology that can help with anxiety, depression, sleep, and much more. I'm not just saying this, it's something that I actually use. Me three. <laughs> it is brought to you by Toby Wright, the four-time Grammy Award-winning record producer, 
And my older brother, tell us a little about tomes, Toby. Well, thank you, Corey. Appreciate that. Thank you, Dr. Cole. And for those that don't know, Tomes is a natural sleep and sound healing portal located on the web at www.tomes.com. That's www.t-a-u-m-m-h-o-m-s.com. And it can be used while sleeping to help heal as you sleep. Well, how does that happen, you ask? Well, each and every night when you sleep, most of us will get about 20 minutes of REM, which is where you dream and where your body heals. So, Tomes has the ability to hold you in REM longer, thereby allowing longer periods of healing in your sleep. We also have 16 titles of Sounds of Healing, and 10 lullabies, which have an underpinning of the tonality that is used to sleep and to heal for the kiddos. Well, conversely, we have four high-performance tonalities that can help you improve your performance in absorption and understanding, and even your performance in athletics. Well, today's sound bath is called Armors. It is designed to protect and heal, and this may help protect you, build your immune system along with deep sleep and other factors, and may help you and your family to stay healthy in an environment of uncertainty. Please enjoy this sound bath of Armors, provided by Tomes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Toby. And it's good to know that I can listen to a couple tonalities that can help me become a professional soccer player. That's right. That's right. Make you run faster than lightning. No, I'm just kidding with that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, if you enjoyed that sound bath, Tomes is located at www.tomes.com. That's www.t-a-u-m-m-h-o-m-s.com. Please come and enjoy our seven-day free trial and subscribe to our service. It's only nine ninety-nine a month or a hundred bucks a year. That's thirty-three cents a night. Is your health worth that? Thank you, Doctor Cole. Thank you, Corey. It's a very informative and fun podcast, and I appreciate you guys. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Doctor Cole. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you wish to get in touch with any of us or have 